Good morning, you guys. You know, as we think about some of our favorite stories, we love stories. Most of our favorite stories, if not all, have an exciting climax, and many of our favorite stories end with a thrilling shootout scene. And sometimes it's a literal shootout like this, or sometimes it's a symbolic shootout. But the shootout moment in a story is when good versus evil go head to head. Uh, when, when glory is all on the line, when justice is finally either carried out or it is squashed. And one of the reasons I think that we love shootouts is because we humans have been made in the image of God who is just. We are like God in this way. We, we want to see justice happen. We want for rights or wrongs to be righted. We want to see good to be rewarded in the end. We want to see evil to be punished in the end. In fact, you know, the, the stories of our lives and the stories that we tell are all part of one big story about justice that God is writing. And it's, it's the story of the good God establishing justice for eternity for the glory of his own name. It's the story of God rightly avenging himself by punishing those who have rebelled against him. It's thankfully the story of a good God graciously offering forgiveness and a radical grace to rebels. And, and this is the storyline of the whole Bible. Uh, how, this, how this conflict between God and evil started, how this conflict uh, between good and bad shapes our human existence right now and for eternity, and, and how this conflict will one day resolve in the future. It says that it's going to end with one epic shootout <laughs> in which Satan and his demons and all people who align themselves with evil will be thrown into a lake of fire, according to the book of Revelation. And Jesus and his angels and all people who align themselves with God will have overwhelming victory and freedom and life with God forever. And, and, and as we read the Bible, it tells us about many of God's past shootouts that foreshadow this great apocalyptic shootout that is to come in the future. And, and when we read the Bible and, and read of these shootouts, it's clear that God always wins and that he can win using any type of metaphorical gun that he chooses to use. I mean, I was thinking about this, about the storyline in the Bible. Consider some of the guns that God has used to win shootouts in the past. God used the Red Sea to defeat Pharaoh. God used trumpets to defeat Jericho. God used a jawbone to defeat the Philistines. God used rock-eating fire to defeat the prophets of Baal. God used a donkey to defeat Balaam. God used a whale to defeat and rescue Jonah. God used spit to defeat blindness. He used his garment to defeat sickness, and he used his own humiliating death on a cross to defeat sin and Satan. So looking at all the weapons God uses, those are just some of them, 
we see that he always wins, not because his guns are powerful, but because he is powerful. And we also see that whoever sets himself against God and his people will lose in the end. And it's, it's gracious and merciful that God tells us that because he doesn't want loss and devastation for us. He wants life and victory for us. And this morning as we look at the book of Acts, we're going to watch three exciting shootouts. Okay, this is welcoming you into your exciting summer, okay, as, as we, we think about it. Some of you are going to be driving west. I don't know if, if it's just summertime, but I start watching John Wayne movies, and I'm like, yeah, this works. Um, but it's all over the Bible. And, and today as we look at this passage, we're going to see three shootouts in which uh, they took place in first century Ephesus, which was a town in modern-day Turkey. And the, the battles are between God and rebel humans who try to go against God, and God and demons who try to go against God, and God and sinful practices deeply rooted in the lives of humans. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, please turn with me to Acts chapter 19, verse 8. And if you uh, don't have a Bible or want an, a, more, a newer one or, or something, please talk to me after the service or one of our leaders. would love to point you in the right direction there. So before we read this, let's, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, as we, as we prepare here to, to open your word and to, to read your word, we just ask you, God, that um, you'd help us. Please help us to fear you in the right way. Help us to trust you and to obey you. We thank you, God, for laying down your life to save ours. And we just uh, pray that you would use your word to sanctify us now from sin. You, you told us, uh, John 17, 3, your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. So use your word to make us more like you. Use your word to free us um, in our lives from sin and Satan and, and the evil around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So again, in the first century, Ephesus was a, a large city in modern-day Turkey, one of the largest cities in the ancient world. And the people of Ephesus were infatuated with demonic spiritual activities. That's not a good combo. A really big city, really into demons. Uh, and it manifested itself several different ways. First, there was idol worship. In, in Ephesus, it was a massive 600-year-old temple where people traveled from all over the world to worship the Greek goddess of fertility named Artemis. And in this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the pride of Ephesus. Uh, writers have written about it for centuries. And then in addition to worshiping Artemis, many uh, Ephesian citizens were steeped in witchcraft and demonic activity. Uh, the, the demonic forces were powerfully at work in Ephesus. Sorcery was very common. And many Ephesian citizens opened up their hearts and minds to demons, which is probably why it's not coincidental that the last chapter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, deals with the armor of God and protection from spiritual in the midst of spiritual warfare. So 
when the Apostle Paul entered Ephesus, <laughs> this dark city, and he began to tell the Ephesians publicly about the great power of one true king, King Jesus, when he told them about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, we could just imagine Satan who had a you know, stronghold on the city gnashing his teeth like the bad guy in that video and loading bullets into his gun getting ready to stop the gospel of Jesus from permeating the darkness. And the first shootout we see here is in uh, chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. It says, And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So when Paul entered Ephesus, he followed his usual custom of preaching the gospel first to the Jews in their synagogue. And that's, that's essentially, it. we're going with this metaphor, that's the first bullet Paul shoots into the spiritual darkness. He shares the news of King Jesus who came to earth in accordance with the Jewish scriptures, who died for our transgressions in accordance with the Jewish scriptures, who rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, and saying all who believe this message and put their trust in God, Jesus Christ, has crossed over from death to life. Verse 8 says that Paul was preaching this boldly, right? Um, he was relying on the power of God's spirit to reason with these people and to persuade with them that Jesus is God, that he really did rise from the dead, and that we must surrender to Jesus or perish. Well, he did this for three months. Um, and after those three months of speaking the truth to the Ephesian Jews, it says that some of them grew stubborn and they, they, they refused to believe Paul's message. And they didn't merely walk away from Paul, they shot back at Paul. And they shot back at the church, all the Christians in Ephesus who were followers of what they called the way. The Ephesian Jews, um, they said things about the church that were untrue. They were slandering God's people in public. Satan often uses the lips of people, both religious and irreligious, both people in the church and outside the church, to attack the church. Uh, this is an ancient tactic that Satan uses to attack the church, its leaders, and the kingdom of God in general. Slanderous words are an ancient tactic that many fools employ against the Lord and his people. And consequently, which many fools are persuaded by and easily believe. In Paul's case, though, look at how he deals with it. Instead of trying to defend himself, instead of waste, wasting time uh, trying to correct the lies of his accusers, he simply entrusts his reputation and ministry to the Lord, and he physically separates himself from his haters. And then God fires back at the Ephesian Jews. So do you remember when Paul was in Corinth, uh, and the Jews in, in 
the, tem- uh, the synagogue in Corinth were so terrible to Paul that he, he left their synagogue. And immediately God gave Paul a place to preach the gospel in the house right next door to the synagogue. Well, God does a similar thing here. Not only does Paul continue to speak the gospel in Ephesus, but also God opens up a new venue that gives Paul an even greater platform than he had before. A place where he can publicly preach the gospel to Jews and Greeks. And the venue is called the Hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was probably a teacher, a well-known teacher in Ephesus, uh, who rented out his, Paul, his hall to Paul. And Paul likely taught during the hours of 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., which were the hottest hours of the day. They were probably the least desirable hours of the day uh, to, to gather a crowd for spiritual teaching because that's when people took a siesta. Uh, in fact, it was said that more Ephesian citizens were awake normally at 1 a.m. than 1 p.m., okay, night people. But because God was behind Paul's ministry, uh, these unideal teaching conditions did not slow people down from coming to hear him teach. Verse 10 says that every day, think about that, every day for two years, Paul thoughtfully dialogued with the citizens of Ephesus in this hall of Tyrannus. Uh, And in this way, the gospel of Jesus prevailed. It prevailed over the slander of the Ephesian Jews so that it made waves in the whole region. It says all the residents in the entire region of Asia heard the gospel. And scholars believe it was probably during this two-year stretch uh, during Paul's ministry in Ephesus that the majority of churches in that area started. Uh, Churches like, we read other churches listed in the New Testament, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all the churches that the Apostle John addresses in the the book of Revelation. They probably all started during this two-year stretch in Paul's time in Ephesus. And so Paul's preaching ministry was shot down at first in the Ephesian synagogue, but God shot back by using the hall of Tyrannus to powerfully advance the gospel in Ephesus and throughout Asia that had Paul stayed and been limited to the synagogue, it wouldn't have otherwise advanced. Okay, so... The second showdown then, let's look at that. In verses 11 to 12, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. You know, ever since the first two human beings, Adam and Eve, Humans have been tempted to use physical objects to control the spiritual world. Adam and Eve believed that if they just ate that forbidden fruit, then they would know everything that God knows. The, uh, the Israelites, they believed that if they built a golden calf and worshipped it, then that golden calf would somehow bless them and give them what they wanted. Attributing Supernatural power to physical objects is not a new phenomenon. It's, it's why God condemns the worship of images in the Ten Commandments. Because we're very superstitious in our flesh. People are, we're very quick to trust in man-made objects that we can feel and touch rather than to trust in God who we can't see. 
Think about this. Think about, and this is true you. This is not an ancient fact or a, a fact in other parts of the world. This is very true in our own culture. Think of all the things that people trust instead of God. People put their trust in lucky jerseys, lucky underwear, rabbit's feet, dream catchers, crystal balls, lucky jewelry, lucky sayings, lucky pictures, lucky statues. God doesn't want us trusting in lucky physical things. He wants us trusting in him. Which makes it curious why God chose to use Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons to heal sick people and to exercise demons from people. And sadly, many people have misapplied this passage by concluding, okay, so if I pray for a physical object like a handkerchief or an apron, then the Holy Spirit will somehow indwell that object with power, and whoever touches it will receive an extra amount of God's blessing. And that is not the point of this passage. And sadly, many crooks have preyed upon weak people by selling them handkerchiefs and aprons and other spiritual relics and holy water that they promise will heal them or make them extra prosperous. So, so what is God doing here? Well, it's important to notice in verse 11 that these miraculous healings from Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons were, quote, extraordinary. They were not ordinary miracles. So it is incorrect to apply this passage to our lives by thinking that prayer handkerchiefs and aprons are God's ordinary means of healing people. It's important to see that this, this, you have to see these, 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 these handkerchiefs and aprons. You have to step back and, and look at them through the context of all of Scripture, okay? Handkerchiefs and aprons are two of many different physical objects God has used to show his power. God has also used shepherd's staffs and fleeces and serpents and whales and donkeys and spit and tablets and frogs and locusts to demonstrate his power. But that doesn't somehow make those objects anointed perpetually. And, and when we consider Jesus' public ministry, it appears one of the reasons he did not use a set formula when he healed people was so that we would look to Jesus as the healing agent and not to the tool that he used to heal people. Now, in a town like Ephesus, which was full of mystical books and tools and superstitious objects that magicians use to command demonic powers, it's not surprising at all that God would choose to use meaningless things like handkerchiefs and aprons to heal people. God wanted the Ephesians to see that the God of the gospel that Paul was preaching can easily heal people using physical objects too. But more importantly, Paul would teach Christians not to put their hope in physical things that have been prayed for, but to put their hope in the living God who answers prayer. And at most, you know, physical objects may serve as reminders of the great things God has done in the past and of the great things he's promised to do in the future. We don't put our hope in those things, though. Needless to say, as, uh, as Paul preached the gospel boldly in Ephesus, was performing signs and wonders, uh, God was, he's shooting pow, uh, bullets into the kingdom of darkness, basically. And, and what's happening is there are Ephesian magicians and exorcists and crooks watching Paul as he does this, and they want a piece of it. 
They want the same power Paul has so that they can use this power of Jesus, whatever that is, to make money for themselves. So let's read what happened in verse 13 to 17. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So these seven sons of Sino, uh, of Siva wanted to profit off of Jesus' name, just like Simon the Magician wanted earlier in Acts chapter 8. Uh, these men were not believers, but it says they went up to demon-possessed people and claimed healing over them in Jesus' name, not because they cared about people, but because they wanted to make money. And so when they spoke healing in Jesus' name over one man, the demon inside of him spoke back. And the demon said, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then it says the demon-possessed man leapt on all seven of those men, overpowered them, stripped off their clothes, and tore into them. So we learn a few things here about demons. Right? This was one demon. First, demons are not stupid. Okay? Demons are spirits that God created, but they have rebelled against God. And God says their destiny is to be cast into the lake of fire. Demons are able to recognize people, they're able to speak, and they're able to know things like who belongs to God and who doesn't. Second, we learn here that demons are terrified of Jesus. The reason that the demon tears into the sons of Siva is because the demons know these men don't belong to Jesus. Okay? The demon knows these men don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, working through them, and protecting them. And so, more than that, uh, because the name of Jesus, according to Scripture, causes demons to shudder, then this, this demon is angry at them for mentioning Jesus. And so it attacks them and sends them running away, naked and humiliated. But it says then, as a result of this incident, in verse 17, that all the residents of Ephesus heard about it. And as a result, they feared God. And they extolled or they worshiped God. They worshiped specifically the name of Jesus Christ. Remember part of the, uh, the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. So Jesus Christ is, is the God who has all authority over demons and people and all creation. And here, Jesus who is sovereign used these men who had evil intentions and he uses demons with evil intentions to make his own name feared and to make his own name worshipped among residents of a wicked city. The wisdom of God is incredible. So, so how exactly did people see that, what happened with the seven sons of Siva and it scared them and how did that make them all of a sudden worship the name of Jesus? Well, 
when that demon-possessed man attacked the seven sons of Siva, God enabled the Ephesians to see Jesus for who he really is and to see Satan for who he really is. The, the Ephesians saw that Jesus Christ is the all-powerful God whose very name makes demons tremble in fear. And at the same time, the Ephesians saw that demons are inferior to Jesus, that they're not to be trusted, they're not to be worshiped. Humans should only worship Jesus. When we look at this, the way that the demon-possessed man attacks the seven sons of Siva shows us Satan's true intentions for us to destroy us. See, Satan and, and demons, they're like really good fishermen. They tempt us with counterfeit pleasures. They promise us gratification. And then they set their hook deep into us and they reel us in and mock us and hope to put an end to us. That does not mean fishing is bad. I like fishing, okay? Just using that as an analogy. But Satan loves using counterfeit lures to promise us gratification, but he hooks us in and uses that to destroy us. And what Satan did to the sons of Siva is what Satan wants to do to you and to me. It is the kindness of God and Jesus Christ that prevents this from happening to everybody. But if the kindness of Jesus Christ laying down his life to save yours does not make you want God, then hopefully a passage like this will. Hopefully demons who want to destroy you will make you want a rescuer. But think about this. If you have not trusted in Jesus, if that's something you're opposed to, if, if you do not have the God, the Holy Spirit living in you, which is what protected, uh, which is what did not protect them in this situation, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then what makes you any different than these vulnerable sons of Siva? What makes you any different from the man who was demon-possessed? And, and I would just ask, how can you honestly say that that will never happen to you? That should put a, a healthy fear in you, a, a fear for spiritual reality, a fear of God, because what you need is the defender. You need God to defend you and protect you. And so what Jesus says is, come to me. Hide under my protective wing. Be filled with my living spirit and take joy in knowing this, that he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. That's what Jesus offers you. When I was in college, I lived in a cheap apartment, basement apartment, in an old brick building in a university town. My landlord's name was Matthew. He was about 30 years old, very strict, not very warm. And as long as you paid your rent on time and didn't make too much noise, he would leave you alone but you didn't want to get on his bad side. Well, three years after I moved out of that apartment, I had to contact him because I needed to use him as a reference for, actually for the house on Camino Island that we wanted. And the craziest thing happened when I contacted him, I found, it, found out that he had become a Christian and that he was 
a whole new person, essentially. He, he was super friendly. He was warm. He was on fire for Jesus. And I was so shocked about this, honestly. So, what? <laughs> that I asked him if he could just tell me how he came to Christ. How did this happen? And he wrote his testimony out for me in an email that I had 12 years ago, and I actually was able to pull it up this week. And as I edited it a little bit, but as I, real, as I read his testimony, I, I realized that all the time that I was living in the basement apartment of this, uh, this building, he was into some really dark stuff in that very same building that I didn't know was going on. The kind of things that I imagine the Ephesian citizens were into, the kind of things that goes on in our very neighborhoods that we, we have no idea in some ways what happens in the other houses right around us. And I want to read part of this testimony just to show you both the reality of demonic powers and the reality of God's power to make people born again through faith and rescue them from those demonic powers. He writes, I was first invited to attend church a year ago in May by a friend of mine from work after we had some very in-depth conversations about what we believed. I believed a lot of things at the time. Using the analogy of a bookshelf, I had a lot of books on the shelf. God was equally on the same shelf as many other New Age practices and ideas that are surprisingly common in America, including ascribing to many Eastern ideas and spiritual practices. I was much further into them and was actually involved in Eastern healing practices. My training in these healing arts had taken six years, and I was very versed in them. During my conversations with my friend at work, they spoke truth that I was unable to refute. Because it is really only God who can convict us and bring us to him, I'm very sure that it was the Holy Spirit speaking through them. So I decided that I would stop these other spiritual practices and focus all my love and attention on God. In the analogy of the bookshelf, you could say that I had taken God and put him on a higher shelf. And as I began to focus all my love and attention on God, he always was able to pour out more on me than I could send him with all my heart. In July, I had the opportunity to be baptized by water and gave a public proclamation of faith before going under. My baptism was amazing. About this time, the spirit guides began to become very upset that I was cheating on them with God and began to reveal what they really were, demons masquerading as angels of light. Then things got really scary for about two weeks. My marriage contract with this demon was exposed to me because it felt that it had ownership and I was its human. I began to get physically attacked, woken up in the middle of the night to sensations of getting whacked by a two by four, and then the demonic oppression began, trying to rip my mind apart. See, this demon had special permissions that I had given it over me and was punishing me for having a relationship with God. And when I tried to talk to my friends from church because I felt like I was losing my mind, their gifts of discernment confirmed that something really bad was going on. In the first 24 hours after I was baptized, a whole team of Christians was put together to intercede on my behalf. And then a second team of Christian warriors would eventually be put together to guide me in what to do and say to break off the stronghold that this demon had on my life. Breaking off that stronghold was the second best day of my life, having the feeling like I was just let out for summer on the last day of school, but the feeling I had that night was like all 12 years of school rolled into one moment. It was a feeling of freedom and elation. What Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. So that's the short version of my testimony of coming to Christ.
It's been a big life-changing experience for me, and now there's only one book on my shelf, God. 1 John 4, 1-4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In this passage in Acts, neither the wicked intentions of these seven sons of Siva, who wanted to profit off of Jesus' name, nor the, the power of a demon could stop Jesus from advancing his kingdom in Ephesus. And he used handkerchiefs and aprons as his guns of choice here. And he easily won the second shootout in this passage. Okay, so secondly, let's read about the third shootout. Or sorry, finally, let's read about the third shootout. Verses 18 to 20 say, Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So there's a public aspect to this, freedom in Christ. One of the ways we can give Satan great power over us is by entertaining secret sins and secret sinful habits. Satan wants us to sin in secret, to be addicted to our secret sin, and never to tell others about our secret sin and to shame us for that. It is our secret sin that Satan uses to disable us, to shame us, and to drive a relational wedge between us and God. Secret sin. Okay? So it is secrecy that gives great power to pornography. It is secrecy that gives great power to drug and opioid use. It is secrecy that gives abusive relationships great use, uh, great power. It is secrecy that gives great power to adulterous relationships and fornication and harming yourself and bitterness in your heart. It's secrecy that gives it power. As long as we keep all those things in the dark where Satan is and do not confess them to God in the light or bring them to light to one another, Satan can keep us trapped in that sin. Secret sin is a powerful bullet that Satan shoots to take down Christians and non-Christians. But look at the way the Holy Spirit was working in the hearts graciously in the, in, the, in the hearts and lives of the Ephesian Christians here to counter Satan's hold on them. Look at the bullets that Jesus shoots back at Satan. Believers coming to Paul in the church, not running. The darkness hates coming to church or to the, or, 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 or to the light, right? But believers now coming to the light, honest about their sin, 
believers confessing, it says, the wicked things that they'd been involved in. These were believers, remember? So this is believers, that's significant. Believers divulging their practices which they had engaged in for so long. And what happens, you know, in magic and sorcery, you don't divulge tricks. You don't divulge demonic activities, the secrets of your potions. Why? Because it rids them of their power. And so that's what these magicians and sorcerers are doing. They're divulging it all. And they're, 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 they're making it powerless. Believers, we see here, no longer living in shame about their sinful practices, but publicly repenting and turning to Jesus. I mean, this is quite a scene. They're burning their expensive magical books which they used to treasure, which at a minimum they amounted to, was hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hundreds. This pile of cash burning in front of them. They're drawing a line in the sand. They're, they're saying, we want to follow Jesus now. And Jesus is more valuable than that stuff. We're not even going to try to sell that to other people because we don't want other people getting into that crud. We want to burn it all. We want that stuff go to the, the pit of hell. That's a powerful message. And this was not a um, forced on them, right? This wasn't some weird, what's the movie, Fahrenheit 451, where they burn all the books. It wasn't what was going on. This is a voluntary thing, saying we're done with this. It's very powerful, right in the middle of a, of a city deeply entrenched in darkness. This is the kind of exciting and radical freedom that Jesus wants for you. This is the kind of freedom and, and joy that Jesus went to the cross for, <laughs> to give to you. See, in Jesus now, you can confess your sins, First John 1, 9 says, because Jesus is faithful to you and to his promises, to his blood covenant with you. He's, he, he, will, he is just, meaning it is right and good, and he will apply his justice to you, not in the sense of punishing you, but in absorbing your sin in the way he was already punished, okay? So he is righteous and just to forgive you, and then to do this, to purify you from all unrighteousness. So it's not like you're just this dirty piece of trash. Jesus purifies you and makes you pure like he is pure. He says you can be free from sinful habits in your life because it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Romans, the book of Galatians, talk about this. He says do, if you are a believer, do not um, imprison yourself to the things you used to be a prisoner to because Jesus died so that you'd be free. You can be free from whatever shame that has haunted you your whole life because Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You, you can have a new life in Jesus Christ because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians says, the old has passed away Behold, the new has come. You can now know God and love him and treasure him and, and say with the Apostle Paul, I consider all things to be trash compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. How do you do that? Through faith alone. 
by God's grace alone. You need to hear that today. If you're here, it's like, (laughs) Paul didn't walk into Ephesus and say, you guys get all your life cleaned up and then we'll talk about whether or not you're worthy of grace. No, the message of the gospel is that God meets you right where you're at in your seat. He wants you to trust in him. He wants to make you born again and be saved. And he's the one who's gonna purify you and get your life together for you because you and I can't do it on our own. That's great news. Wow. Knowing that even this freedom that we desire, is it really, we're not the ones to purchase it or to apply it or to empower it in our lives. We're the ones who have to claim it and discipline ourselves to claim it over and over and over again by the the Holy Spirit working in us. So, you know, when you look at the city of Ephesus, the grace of the Holy Spirit did not go easy on the wicked city of Ephesus. God poured out his grace with great power onto Ephesus. He rescued many people who were engaged in sorcery and secret sin, and he wins the shootout again. And his victory is really summarized nicely in verse 20. It says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love that word prevail. Satan did not increase and mightily prevail in Ephesus and Asia. The word of the Lord, the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected for sinners, increased and prevailed mightily in this dark region. Jesus prevailed mightily. This word prevail is so important because it doesn't just describe this scene. It describes the wonderful future for us if we are in Christ. It describes what Christ is gonna do in the end when he returns. He will prevail. Jesus is gonna prevail over all the wickedness of this world, over all powers that oppose him, over all the attempts to try to stop the gospel from advancing. Jesus is going to prevail over all disease and death we may experience in this life, Jesus prevails mightily. Disease, you guys, won't prevail. It won't have the last word in your life. Death will not prevail. The death of your loved ones of Christ won't prevail. Sin won't prevail. Satan won't prevail. Jesus will prevail. It's the message of the Bible. And he will prevail mightily with grace and power and holiness forever, and he will sweep up into that uh, prevailing power all who trust in him. What wonderful news to a world that desperately needs a rescuer. You guys go ahead and stand up with me now. We wanna do what this passage says. Man, we wanna ask God to pour his grace out on our city like he poured in Ephesus. We want to extol the Lord Jesus Christ together. And uh, let me close us in prayer. Dear Lord, we just lift you up now. And you are our rescuer. You are the one who prevails. You are the mighty God. God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die, to pay the punishment for our sin in our place, 
and to unite us in his resurrection and victory over the grave and sin and Satan and hell. And God, we declare your name, Jesus Christ, higher than every power. You are our hope in this life. You are our hope in death. God, we pray that your grace would generously pour out on our city, on our neighbors, in our households, in our lives, and in our families' lives. We need you, Holy Spirit, to break in and free us from secret sin, from demonic powers, from everything that is not of you. And we're just thankful, God, that you will prevail. It's not a question of whether you'll prevail. The story's already been written. Jesus, you're the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. You're the one who will sing, we will sing holy, holy, holy to forever. And God, I just pray for my friends today that we would have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, that we would trust in you. And God, for we realize that not every battle on this earth in our lives is going to be won the way we want them to win, to, to win them. But greater than that is the meta-narrative, the bigger story that undergirds all of our smaller stories, that those of us that are in Christ will win, even if the victory isn't totally felt right now. We thank you for that, Jesus. Please use us as your ambassadors of this great news. We lift your, high, your name up high. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, say hi to somebody new, you guys. Love on each other. Thanks for being here.